Welcome to Releasing Your Inner Dragon, where story creators talk story creation. Drake is an award-winning fantasy novelist and creative writing teacher. You can find his epic fantasy series, The Genesis Oblivion, on Kindle Vela. Marie runs a fantasy world-building channel called Just In Time Worlds, and her first book, The Hidden Blade, is available on Kindle Unlimited. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome once again to Releasing Your Inner Dragon podcast with Drake and Marie. We're very excited to have you here. Today is a really cool topic, one that I actually spend an exorbitant amount of time talking about with my students, my other writers and everything like that because of the style of writing I I do and, and tend to gravitate toward, which is talking about writing multiple POV stories and how do you pick those POV stories? And I guess we can also talk about if you're writing just a single POV character, how do you pick the narrating character for that? Yes. So I will start us off by discussing, I wrote in the first, in my first book, In the Hidden Blade, I had just one narrating character, which is Louis. And the reason why I did that was because I wanted to illustrate very much his talents and it was very much his story. In the second book, I did introduce a second character who comes from a completely different continent. So that tells a completely different story, which is now intersecting with the main storyline. So the choice there was very obviously based on location. And I guess let's let's start by discussing location-based POVs. Yeah. So in Genesis, I mean, there's five main POV characters in book one that does grow uh, as the series continues. When you look at the five characters first of all the reason why they're the five characters that they are i know i know what the overcome is at the end of the five books i know what the past was and you know i i created where everything came from why this world is the way it is why it's set up so when i pick these characters first of all i need specific characters that have specific powers to specifically do things in this fantasy world. It is a magic-based world and, and I've got different types of magic. And so that's one of the, the kind of decision factors when I'm just in the planning stage. But that doesn't pick narrating characters. That just means, you know, I know because they could be secondary characters. I still, you know, if we look at the first Harry Potter book, it's also one POV narrator. It's Harry. Mm-hmm. But you need Hermione in that first book or it doesn't work. You need Ron in that first book. You know, if, if Ron wasn't a big wizard's chess player, they would have died. Yeah. So you have to have these things. And neither of those were ever narrating characters. No, not at all. So, so you can have, I could have, you know, just saying, well, I've got different types of magic and I need an aspect of each for the final showdown and all this other stuff. That doesn't mean I'm going to have to choose them as narrating characters. Hmm. So I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times before we start the podcast, me and Marie kind of talk about like, what are we going to talk about today? And she has this big list because she's way more organized than me. And it's funny, the things she's like, oh, I want to talk about this. I'm like, we literally talked about that last night because we record on Thursdays and every Wednesday night I have my private critique group meeting. And so it's, it's just weird. <laughs> it seems like I think she might have a camera in my house and she's like, oh, they talk about this. That's a good idea. I am good with software. Well, Exactly. <laughs> We talked about, so one of my uh, attendees asked about this scene. He's like, I'm really struggling with trying to figure out how to write this scene. So what he wanted to do is he wanted to, he's writing, it is a multi POV story that he's writing, but it's only a couple. I think it's three, if I remember correctly. 
but he wanted to write a scene from the POV of a guy following one of his narrating characters. And I'm like, does this guy is, you know, what's his part in the story? And he's like, oh, well, no, they get in a fight and he kills him. You know, he dies. And I'm like, then you can't be in his head. You, you can't waste that time. That's just an insult to your readers where, but he's like, but it'll be really cool. I'm like, no, it won't. It's cool to you. You want to see it from that angle. I want to, to live everything through that POV character. So I guess, I guess one disclaimer we need to start with is we are mostly talking, and I say mostly for a reason, we are mostly talking about limited POVs. So really when we're talking multi-POV, we're talking two point of view styles, period. Third person, free and direct discourse, which 99.9% .9 of you guys are writing, or true third person limited, which you really shouldn't be writing in, but which is what I write in. And I say you shouldn't write in it because it actually causes some problems that you have to work around where free indirect discourse does not. And most of you by default are just writing in most books that are written in third person. They call it limited. It's not limited. It's actually free indirect discourse, but that's what we're talking about. And the reason why we're not talking about first person, even though that's a limited POV is that first person needs to have one narrator period. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry. I, don't think that you can do first person with multiple narration. You can do a first person narrator and third person narrator the way that Patrick Rothfuss did, but two first person narrators. I'm reading one story that's little written like that. And I just, every time there's a switch, I just feel confused. Yeah. Well, it's but dumb because the problem is that you only have I as your pronoun. It, you're, when, when you're in that first person, you're creating this beautiful bubble that you're sticking the reader inside of, but it is limited to that pronoun, that, that I, pronoun. me pronoun. Yeah. So I get him and she, and mm -hmm. it just takes away that weird feeling of, wait, which head am I in? Because yeah. it's always I, no matter what you're doing. And so it's just, it's, it's not designed for it. Why would you use a, a point of view that, that would that's literally going to break what you're trying to do. Whereas third person limited free under discourse is designed for multi POV. And I, I did say mostly earlier. I do want to kind of touch on that. One of the guys in my, one of my writing group, and I run two, he's actually writing an omniscient story. Now, Omniscient is a dead POV. It's not something you should write in in today's world, but it fits his voice. It fits the story that he's telling. It, it fits how he wants to do it. And so I support him 100%. The, the thing that he struggles with, because he's a newer writer, and he's in this group of writers who are all writing very limited. We're writing in third person. You know, Everybody else is writing a free inner discourse, which is a very limited POV. And so he, he falls in this trap where he wrote this, the scene that he read last night. He was like, well, I'm in, I'm in this guy's head. And I'm like, no, no, you're in your head. The writer, the storyteller, you're an omniscient. You're a third party who's not a part of the story. You're not in any of the characters' heads. And I just explained it because, you know, there's six of us sitting around a room and me and him were sitting on, we're in my living room. So there's a, like a love seat kind of thing. And me and him are sitting on that. So we're side by side and everybody else is kind of in front of us. And I said, this is the difference. I'm writing limited. So, and I pointed to one of the guys and I said, Alan is my narrating character. So Alan is telling the story for me. 
Alan is. Alan is the storyteller. He's a character. He's in the story. He's telling the story about those four guys. And everything is from Alan's perspective. You're writing an omniscient story, which means you're the narrator. So the reason why, and you're telling the story about those four guys, you're not a part of them. You're just telling the story about those four guys. And I said, and the reason why this is such a huge thing for you to understand is it's about the connection between the narrator and the reader. So when I'm writing Alan as my narrating character, then the connection is between Alan and the reader, which is why when you head hop, which is why when you do, you know, break your POV or whatever, you're breaking that connection that you've built between the reader and Alan. It's the same thing with Omniscient. You're the storyteller. So I'm sitting next to you. We're both outside of the story and we're both looking at these four people that are in the story. I'm fine with that. It's not as immersive as, you know, the limited POVs. But still, you've built a bridge between me, the reader, and you, the storyteller, where you're telling me about those guys over there in the story, which is why it's much more hands-off, not as immersive and everything. But but still, Lord of the Rings is written this way. I'm connected to the narrator, and the narrator is connected to the story, and that's my bridge, and I'm comfortable with it. If you drop me into one of the characters' heads, now, wait, you were telling me a story, but now that person over there's telling me, wait, no, that's, and you're breaking the POV and you're actually hurting the reader's experience. It's not about what you want. It's about understanding what the reader's experience is going to be. And so that's why I'm such a huge stickler to point of view and all of that. So that's just kind of groundwork to kind of set up everything that we're talking here. Even in Omniscient, however, you are following a character, generally yeah. speaking, generally or following it, groups of characters and it, omniscient. I think the reason why Tolkien went omniscient is so that he could follow multiple groups of characters because it was before we were just like, here, I'm telling a story from John's perspective. And then I'm telling a story from, you know, Drake's perspective. And then I'm telling a story from Marie's perspective, etc. I don't think he did it because he wanted to tell it from, from multiple POVs. I think he did it more of that's just how everyone wrote for the most part. Yeah. That's that's one of the reasons why I can't read anything before about 1960 or 1970 because it's just this horrible, telly, very hands-off kind of way. And, and I struggle with Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. I do read it about every five years, but it is not enjoyable for me. And it's also like you know when I'm teaching at Comic-Con in front of 600 fantasy geeks, I will ask the question – how many of you have started reading Lord of the Rings but never finished? And half the room raises their hand. Like, think about that. The most well-known fantasy novel ever written, half the people who start it never finish it. That is it's not hard. a good track record. It's hard. It is. It's a hard so, read. But it's the reason why when I read 1984, I was literally blown off of my feet because you're talking about, you know, 1948 when it was uh, published. So it's written in 1945, 46-ish. And it is literally written in limited, you know, free and direct discourse, but still limited. And it's it was such a refreshing, amazing. And then I was like, oh, my God, I got to read everything this guy reads. So I pick up Animal Farm and it's written in that crappy old omniscient way. And I'm like, yeah. Animal Farm is not a novel. Animal Farm is a uh pretty much direct satire piece Certainly. of politic writing. But you know? could have still done it. He, he, I, to me, <laughs> it would have still been better you had could've. he kept but, his style in 1984. We might be veering a little bit off track here. But, we, but, <laughs> but well, POVs matter uh, animal for this discussion. Form, yeah, Animal Farm wasn't ever meant to be a story. 
That's why everything in animal form is so on the nose. I read Animal Farm when I was 10. And then I asked my mother, like, can you explain this to me? And she explained it to me in a way that I could understand it. Like, as a 10-year-old, I couldn't fully understand all of the complexities of behind communism and why, you know, what, what had gone wrong in the Russian Revolution and everything else. But, but yeah, most 30-year-olds can't understand the complexity <laughs> of that. But, you know, I, I could grasp the basic concepts around it. I couldn't read 1984 before I turned six. I think I was 16 when I read 1984 for the first time, because it is not as on the nose as Animal Farm. It was but, a very different style of, of commentary. You know, it was a much more direct. And that's why it's an omniscient and all the rest of it. And, and I'm fine with that. I'm just, I was yeah. not really commenting on what the choice was that he made or why he made the choice, yeah. but more of the fact that 1984, as far as, you know, what I've read, and I don't read a lot of old stuff, you know, as many of you know, I didn't go to college. So I don't have that, that reading list that I was forced to read for all of these different things. So when I go back and read Moby Dick, or 1984, or The Great Gatsby, it's because I chose to do them, which is why I devoured 1984. I did finish The Great Gatsby, but I I had to force myself to do it. And I did never finish Moby Dick, <laughs> because I don't have to. And it's horrible. And so I'm like, no, I, I'm done. I'm a couple chapters in. I hate this book. I don't have to. There's, there's no test that I have to take. There's no teacher making me do this. I'm doing this of my own free will. And my free will says, put this book down. So I don't have a deep read through of the early, early stuff. The, 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 mm. the late 1800s is when publishing really kind of found its own and then through the early 1900s. But I've gone back. I forced myself to go back and at least read pieces like Moby Dick. I read the couple, first couple of chapters. I skipped in, read another chapter, skipped in, read another chapter. And then I was like, this is, I don't want to read this. And that's the thing. And that's why I can talk about the history of how we craft stories in prose and, and it is a history. It is, it is a, it is a growth Absolutely. Absolutely. and we are way different storytellers, which is why it kills me when I meet these fantasy authors today. And, you know, I read their stuff or they tell me about their stuff and they're at a writer's conference getting ready to pitch it to an agent. And I still tell them this is never going to sell. So I, I tell them it wouldn't be published because, and they're like, they're always flabbergasted. They're like, what are you talking about? This is written exactly like Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings is the number one selling fantasy book. And I'm like, yeah, Lord of the Rings could not get published today if Tolkien paid publishers. Well, I mean, he, he would self-publish it. That's, that's how it would be published because no publisher would touch Lord of the Rings if it hadn't been published. Like if, if, if it didn't exist in our, in our history and then in 2021. He, he was the first, he gets a pass. Like that's well, how it, that's how it works. So yes, in some of his like the the walking, yeah. just the describing pages of walking. Yes, he gets a pass on that. But the omniscient that was how they wrote. That stories. was how they wrote. Yeah. So it, it, he doesn't necessarily get a pass on that. That's that was accepted. Mm. The crazy thing to me is is that one of the big negative reviews that I've heard. Uh, back in the late 40s and early 50s, about 1984, was how horribly it was written, that it wasn't written the way they were used to mm. reading stories. It wasn't written in this tele-omniscient way. It was written in this limited, showy way. 
And so it's, it boggles my mind because I am, I'm a limited showy writer. And so it boggles my mind to have critics going, Oh, I can't believe you wrote it in that horrible limited showy way. Like, why didn't you write it in a really telly way that pushes me as far from the story as you could possibly push me. So I feel nothing. That's weird to me that they literally criticized him for writing this amazingly immersive story, but we've changed, you know, we've grown. And that's why I said, you can't, you can't write that way. Why choose certain narrating point of view? So one of my big decision factors, as I said, was simply location. I had, like you, I've got different characters who need to be in different places and eventually need to get together. One of those characters is on a different continent. Now, I could have chosen to keep my narration on my single character and then just start the story start the other character's story from where she intersects with his story. Mm-hmm. But if I did that, I would lose a amount of backstory like this big, right? And that backstory is kind of important because this narrating character is that continent's equivalent of the Pope in the Middle Ages. And she's married to two men because that's how their priesthood works. So if you meet her raw when she inter- uh, interacts with Louis for the first time and you have none of that context, it's going to look hell of a weird. Like it's, it's, it's not, nothing about her is going to make sense to you. So you have to tell her story for her to make sense in the story. But her story is way on the other side of the world. So for location purposes, I introduced another narrating character. And I haven't read your second book, but I'm assuming yeah. that she's instrumental in the overcome of this story. Absolutely. Because that's, that's what I tell people. So going back to what I said earlier about the guy who was like, but I want to write this chapter from this, this assassin who's following my main character. The mm. reason why you don't want to do that is I don't care about that assassin. Uh, just as an example, there was another piece that was read last night where this author introduced a new character mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, cause this author's or this writer is actually a really decent writer, really well at writing limited and immersive and showy and all this other stuff. And so when we got, when he finished and we got to the comments, I went, okay, so here's the problem that I have with this. Your stuff up to this point has been fantastic, very modern, very immersive, very showy. And this reads like I just stepped back in time to a 1970s Conan novel. It is massively telly. It's a complete info dump. And like literally, I after the first paragraph, the next like six paragraphs, I put a line marking them all together. And I wrote, I don't care yet. It was this huge info dump about this, what this guy had accomplished. But I don't care about I, I I've known this guy for one paragraph. So it's going back to kind of exactly what you said. In, in an earlier podcast. In a flashback scene. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care. You, I don't care what he's done. I don't care what he's accomplished. I don't care that he thinks that's great because I don't care about this guy. You've got to make me care about the guy first. You've got to. But then it was the same through the whole thing. He never really made me care about this person. And so I'm like, yeah. And, and then my question was, why is this guy even an narrating character? And he's like, well, he's the bad guy. And I'm like, Okay. Why is he a narrating character? He's like, well, I wanted to introduce him to the, the, the readers. I'm like, okay, why is he a narrating character? You haven't answered my question. Does he have 
a growth? Does he actually impact? I mean, obviously he's the bad guy. So he impacts the climax because he's trying to stop the heroes from doing it, but it, it, it isn't a, it isn't a story arc. Does he have a thematic element? Are you going to teach the reader something through his story? And if the answers of any of those questions is no, then no, you can't have him as a POV character. Just like you can't have the assassin following the guy that's going to die. That means nothing to the story. We don't know anything of his past. We're never going to see him in the future. No, you can't switch that guy's head no. to a, in a limited, in third person limited, third person free internet discourse, in my opinion. And again, I've seen this broken a million times, but in my opinion, you cannot have a narrating character if several things aren't, you know, checked off. First of all, they have to grow through the story. They have to start somewhere and actually grow through the entire thing and change. They have to have a thematic element, a strong thematic element that ties into the other thematic elements you're doing because every narrating character should have its own thematic element. And if you have more than one character, then the story also has to have a, th a major thematic element. So in book one, there's five POV characters, which means I have six major themes because each character has their own unique major theme and the story has a major theme and and the five characters are all very selfish and only give a crap about their major themes but each one of them must accomplish their goals or the thematic element of the story fails mm -hmm. so it all ties together in this crazy complicated arc through that novel and everything must fall into place or not. I mean, it just depends on what I'm doing with the story or the, the, the entire overcome of the story doesn't work. And that's the difference between epic fantasy and adventure fantasy. With adventure fantasy, you can have a group of five characters that only have one thematic arc. And, and the story doesn't have it. It's just one thematic arc for the whole story. And we're talking about, you know, Terry Goodkind, um, um, David Eddings, those type of Terry Brooks. And that's fine. Adventure fantasy is, is cool. It's fun. Those five characters aren't really five characters. They're one character with five different personalities. You're just writing, you know, to give it conflict internally and all that, but they have one goal. They have one goal they're trying to do. They have, they're all working toward it. They don't have their own individual, you know, desires and needs and motivations. And that that's the difference between, you know, adventure fantasy and epic fantasy and why most so epic I, fantasy. I, I do want to challenge that a little. I do okay. want to challenge that a little. Because, so I have my one narrating character, which is Nero, who's off, you know, coming from the from the other continent, and she's coming with her own character growth. But in in the Empire, I have two narrating characters at this point. I haven't introduced more than that. One is a little girl, which is a separate thing, but one is Louis, who was with us in the first book as well. So you have three narrating characters in your second book. I I do. Yes. Okay. You said <laughs> One of them's early. a blind girl. <laughs> that's um, fine. But there's still three narrating characters. Yeah. But but what I actually want to talk about is the people with Louis. Okay. Because the people with Louis are a gang of five. Okay. And I, I actually deliberately chose a gang of five trope for, for that. But each of those characters has a planned growth arc. They're not point of view characters they're not narrating characters but by no stretch of the imagination are they characters without a growth arc or characters that are the same person as louis 
literally doesn't challenge anything I just said. No, but you what can you're doing. have a single point, a single narrating character and still have multiple growth arcs that tie into different thematic elements. But here's point. the difference. Here's the difference. What you're talking about are secondary characters. And you're mm-hmm. talking about making great dynamic secondary characters because secondary characters sometimes tend to be flat. They're the mm-hmm. same type of character at the beginning of the story as the end of the story. So all you're talking about is writing better secondary characters, which I try to do. I try to make sure that my secondary characters who are not a part, you know, who are not narrating mm-hmm. the story are growing and are, you know, have their own motivations and have their, mm-hmm. and, and the perfect example of that is the villain. The villain is not my narrating character and, and not, normally never is my narrating character, but mm. they literally have a story arc. They literally have motivations and goals. They are literally a dynamic person. And so, you know, that's how you make a better villain, a better secondary character. What we're talking about are narrating. So in adventure fantasy, all of those characters end up being narrating characters. Um, so like if we look at the sort of Shannara series, there's many narrating characters in that, but there's really not. There's one it's, they're all just basically, yes, they have different flavors and they have different this, but they all have one goal, one theme, one, everything from the start of the book to the finish of the book. And yes, they all grow. I'm not, I never said that they didn't grow. What I'm saying is, is that they all are, it's like a dungeons and dragons party. We are friends and we are going to go into this dungeon and we are going to kill the evil dragon at the bottom. We have one goal as a team. We are a group. We are one unit. Epic fantasy is different where even the two, like look at the Stormlight Chronicles with uh, Sanderson and just look at the two main POV characters. There's there's a ton of POV characters in that. Um, But every one of them doesn't necessarily give a crap, sorry, give a crap about (laughs) any of the other narrating characters. It's, they're not a team. They have their own reasons for doing what they do and and their own agendas and their own everything. And so that's what I mean by the, the, the difference Mm -hmm. between adventure fantasy and epic fantasy. Epic fantasy to push yourself. I mean, Game of Thrones is another great example of that. Nobody, no narrating character gives a crap about any other narrating character. And so, and half the time they're working at cross purposes to each other. <laughs> and, that, and that's kind of unique or, or a little bit more unique to, um, to Game of Thrones. Because, like with the Stormlight Chronicles, the two main or the three main um, uh, narrating characters are all trying to, and they yeah. do, they, they, they come do, they to are it working, they are pulling in the same direction. They're not a right. team, but they are pulling in the same direction. Right. Game right. of Thrones, you literally have narrating characters at cross purposes with each other. Yeah, they're literally just trying to kill each other, and and they literally do kill each other. Uh, they do kill each other. <laughs> that's that's kind of the way it works. But but that's the thing. So so that's that's why I said I don't think you're challenging me because all you're doing is creating more dynamic secondary characters, which is awesome. That's the way you should push yourself with your secondary characters and tertiary if you can. Like I try to make that bartender who says that'll be three copper as cool as I can possibly make that bartender. He's got one line in my story. We never see him again. He's a tertiary character, but I do want him to kind of feel like he's a unique person. Mm-hmm. It's hard if the three copper, like that's it. <laughs> it's his only thing. It's, it's really hard, but you know, but with secondary characters, you definitely, and a lot of writers fail at that where they, they have these very flat. I, the, the example I always use is uh, in the, the, and I loved it. And I actually know uh, Kevin Sorbo, but the Hercules series, I, the, the, his sidekick, um, what was his name? I can't remember his name, pretty flat for the most part. It was, he was, he was the, uh, trickster 
kind of archetype. So it was always, how does Hercules get into this? Well, his sidekick goes off and does something he shouldn't do and gets in trouble and Hercules has to rescue him. And they use that trope over and over and over and over again. And so the sidekick character really never grew. Whereas the same group of people made Xena Mm. and her sidekick was much more dynamic. Uh, the little blonde girl, I can't remember her name either, but she actually was growing through the thing and was changing. And she actually impacted Xena's character in, in the growth and everything like that. And so I, I love that dynamic much better, but, and I know I'm, I'm crossing over into movies, but still, if, if we were writing these novels, Xena would be my narrating character and her sidekick would be a secondary, same thing with Hercules and his sidekick, they would be a secondary character. And so I'm just using those examples of one was flat and one but, actually had this really cool growth. But I mean, let's let's have a discussion about that, right? Because I mean, yes, Louis is my narrating character, but he does have this little gang of five now, okay, of of other characters around him. Now, I could, in theory, switch into one of them being a point of view character. Somebody asked me if I'd ever do Louis' mother as a point of view character, and the answer to that is no. But there are different reasons for that. Because <laughs> um, she's weird. Louis's mother. That'd, yeah, that'd be a hard one to to, to write. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it would. Yes. Louis's mother is very weird. <laughs> <laughs> I love that character, but I love her as a secondary character. I don't ever want to yeah. be in that woman's mind. No, you don't. You don't want to be there. That her mind is is a frightening place. <laughs> yeah, and I but, think that mystery. I think being outside of that actually enhances it. You know, the, that's the problem is when you, if you're writing in limited and you step into a character's head, it's the reason why I don't like, I don't like dropping in the head of my villain because mm-hmm. I don't want, because you really shouldn't hide anything from your readers at that point. Cause they're inside the mind of this person. Same thing with like, you know, I do write deities and mortals and yeah. these, I, I don't want to, I never want you to be inside of those people's heads. I do want my readers to question you know, whether the heroes are doing the right, like I want them to have some sympathy for the villain, but I don't want them to have so much sympathy for the villain that they're rooting for the villain. So I give my villains good reasons for what they're doing. I mean, some of them are just power hungry because there are people who are just power hungry. We all know them. Some of my villains are driven by complex vengeance focus, things that terrible things that happened to them, terrible things that people who are on the heroic side did to them without knowing about. The boys. The boys is a great example of, you know, you have these heroes that because of, of who they are and how they are, they do horrible things to normal people. And so you get this group of normal people who are like, we're going to kill them. We're going to kill superheroes. That's what we're going to do because it's the right, right thing to do. So I want my readers to have sympathy for them, but I want my readers ultimately to be supportive of my narrating characters. My, mm-hmm. so, and that's why I don't do villain POVs, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I don't want my readers to have that much sympathy for the villain, right. that they're cheering for the wrong side. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, you can have sympathy for the dude whose family was killed, and because of that, he's driving this vengeance plot. But he is still the bad guy who is seeking to destroy the social order for the entirety of 65 million people. That is still a bad, evil action. Anyway, to get back to the point of view. So in this band of five, why would I choose to introduce a secondary point of view? So I've got Louis as my main point of view. Why would one introduce another one in in such a band of five where you've got this team effectively? 
It goes back to mm. my rules of picking a narrating POV character. Mm. They have to have a growth arc, which, you know, yes, your characters, those five characters have growth arts. Great. That's one check for them. Mm-hmm. They have to have a thematic element that's different from all the other thematic elements, but still ties in to the entire story. Do they have that? That's a lot harder to answer. Yes. Thirdly, does their story tie in at the end and are they directly responsible for the overcome? That's usually where the answer is no. So it's because the problem is, is what that happens is if you have a secondary character that, that becomes that you get this disconnect and I'm going to go, I, I, every time I go down this path, I always go after the two biggest, most money-making IPs and I get that, but they're terrible and they should not be the two biggest, most money-making IPs because of, of what they did. The first one I love to dog is Star Wars. So they did it right in the first Star Wars movie. Hot, you know, Luke Skywalker is our hero. He's the only hero through the thing. He's we get the all hope is lost moment where Darth Vader's on his tail. We get the rescue from without where Han Solo shows up and shoots Darth Vader in the butt to buy Luke time. So that it is Luke who then overcomes the story. Mm-hmm. How much would that how much would you enjoy that movie if Han Solo shows up? You know, same movie. Everything is exactly the same. So Luke is our POV character. Luke is our hero. Luke is the one we're rooting for. Han Solo shows up, shoots Darth Vader in the butt, and then says, all right, kid, get out of my way so I can blow up this Death Star. And then he pushes Luke out of the way, blows up the Death Star, and they go flying home. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, everybody everybody agrees with me on that. They're like, oh, my God, that's so terrible. Mm -hmm. And yet you get to the end of the three movies, and that's exactly what happens. Luke Skywalker is there to fight the emperor. And his dad says, all right, kid, get out of my way so I can kill the emperor and win the whole story for you. And you get to do nothing. And everybody's like, oh, no, that was fine. No, it isn't. That's that's horrible to me. And even you know, I saw that movie when I was 13, 14 years old and we came walking out of it. I'm not a writer at that point, although I was dabbling. I wrote my first novel when I was 12. I was dabbling. But I didn't know it anywhere near what I know it at 52. And so my friends were all like, oh, best movie ever. And I was like, I, I don't, I don't like, and I didn't know why. I didn't know mm. why at 12, 13 years old, 14 years old, however old I was when, um, when Jedi came out. I just know I didn't like it. But fast forward, you know, 15, 20 years when I'm now studying stories and, and everything else immensely. And I'm like, oh, the rescue from without did the overcome. That's why I didn't like that movie. And so, and and every time I get in discussion, I guess I should finish this up because people are like, oh no, but that wasn't, you're missing the point. The point is is that Luke Skywalker was there to save his dad, not kill the emperor. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's an adventure story. Yes, he could still do it. And that's the thing. If they had used Darth Vader as the rescue from without, like Han Solo, here's my ending. Luke says, I'm not going to fight you. And he's like, fine, you'll die. He starts electrocuting him. Darth Vader goes, oh, no, he's killing my son, but I love my emperor, but I love my son, but I love my emperor. Then you just have Darth Vader just stand in the way. He just literally steps in the way of the lightning. The lightning starts hitting him. So the emperor does exactly what he did before. He goes, fine, I'll kill you first. And that buys Luke enough time to regain himself, chop the emperor's head off. And then the, the movie goes on exactly what it does. Darth hits the ground. He says, take my helmet off. I want to see with my own eyes. Luke says, but it'll kill you. And he's like, I don't care. And, and the movie goes on. And now it becomes a rescue from now. Luke does the overcome because Luke has been the hero for three freaking movies. 
And you, I don't want, you know, because if you make me Luke, I don't want my dad killing the villain. And the, I'm the hero. The worst, the worst part about that is people say the overcome is Luke not fighting the emperor because it's not giving into the dark side. But I'm sorry, but that's bullshit. He that, kills I'm sorry, constantly that, that's, using that's the force. It's, it's nonsense. It's not that the overcome is not not killing the emperor. The overcome is not giving into your rage right. while killing the emperor. The emperor needs to die. And I think even Yoda would have been on board with the emperor needs to die. Having your father kill the emperor is not absolving you in any way of killing no. the emperor. <laughs> no. And, and Luke uses the force to kill tons of people. So by saying that, you know, oh, if he had killed the emperor, he'd have fallen to the dark side. Well, what about all those other people he killed? <laughs> like, are, are those just exempt from from that? You know, so, if, anyway. if, if you kill a stormtrooper, it doesn't count. <laughs> right, right. If I'm going to pick a, and this is just a long way, and it, and just just to throw it out there because I said there were two. The same thing with Lord of the Rings. It should have been Frodo that threw that ring into the Mount Doom, Ooh. not Gollum. So, so the fact, they, mm, I disagree. So, so here's my ending. Here's okay. my ending because again, Gollum is the rescue from without. Yep. So everything happens the way it did. He goes up, he pulls the ring off, he gets ready to throw it in, into the lava. He goes, you know what? Screw it. I'm keeping this. So he fails. He mm. puts the ring on. Gollum attacks him during the struggle. Instead of Gollum biting his finger off and taking the ring and, and killing himself and destroying it. So that means that you leave the story with the hero failing, period. He failed. Instead, the struggle makes Gollum accidentally fall into the thing. After Gollum is dead, Frodo's standing there. He's like, crap, I'm going to become that. That's what I become if I fall to this ring. Oh, yeah, no, that was the, the rescue from out is the, the knowledge that if he keeps the ring, he will turn into Gollum. And so he then that buys him the time to recover himself. He pulls the ring off. He chooses to throw it into the fire and then he walks out victorious. See? And I think I think it's the same thing. And you can argue with me all you want. It's like, okay, change so, so, so I, I disagree with you on the Lord of the Rings, not because you're wrong about the hero failing, but because I think Tolkien's intent was that the hero failed. Because well, but that was that was you could say fight. the same thing about you could say the same same thing about Return of the Jedi. No, but I their don't intent think, I, I, was that Luke no. didn't kill the Emperor that he failed. No, no I, I don't think that was Lucas's intent at all. <laughs> I'm just saying you. But, I could I could Tolkien, make an argument for that. No, no, you could you could make the argument, but I think in in Tolkien's case, because of the place where Tolkien was writing from, bear in mind that Tolkien had been through the war and the trenches mm -hmm. and the. I mean, it it was. It was very much, there is nothing like the horror of the First World War to bring home to you that heroes fail. You but know. that's not the story. In every other, yeah. that's the only moment. Like, that's not the theme that you've been playing with. You haven't, you, you have to thread that in. You have to give me that mm -hmm. more and more. I mean, look at, look at Boromir as the perfect example. He totally falls to the ring. He tries to kill Frodo and take it. He realizes his mistake because the orcs are the rescue from without in that scene. The orcs show up and he's like, oh, right. They're the real bad guys. Oh, crap. I turned into them. You run, little man. And I'll, I know I'm going to die, but it's fine. I'm mm -hmm. going to redeem myself. He never laid. We never. You have to prepare audiences for the thematic elements that you're doing. 
the the theme starts at the beginning of a story and works all the way through. Mm. That theme came out of nowhere. And so you can say that that's what he wanted to do, but I will argue it every time because it still isn't, they didn't plant that anywhere in the story. It isn't any part of anything that prepares me for the, for the hero failing. You've already shown me multiple times where the heroes fall, but then redeem themselves. Mm-hmm. I still, I still personally think it's the wrong way to have ended that story. Just like I feel that it's the wrong way to end Jedi. It's all about the reader. And I say this all the time, but you have force the reader to take on this persona they are you know so really what you're doing at the end of that is you're making me fail Mm -hmm. you're making my dad killed the the emperor when i should have done it you're making me fail to the ring when i should have been strong enough to overcome it yes you can let me fall at the end for a moment let Gollum kind of remind me of of the dangerous road that i just chose to walk but then i redeem myself and, and, and talk about a great callback to the Boromir scene. He literally mm. could have even, if I was writing it, he would have remembered Boromir. He would have said his name and gone, you know, you, you taught me this. You taught me that even after I fail, I can redeem myself. And that would have been a great callback to that. Like, again, I'm, I, I think <laughs> both those movies ended terribly and in the worst possible way for your fans, because you're having the fan fail because it's not about the character the character is the reader yeah and so you're literally forcing the reader to fail and since it isn't a story it isn't like seven at the end of seven and i'm yeah. a broken man and everything is horrible and so when when what's in the box happens i know what's in the box and i, I don't want you to open that box and i know it's gonna you've the, the thematic elements have pushed me all the way to knowing what's in the box that's also the reason why I don't like, I like some grimdark fantasy, some, but you have to be a very good grimdark author for me to like you. Yeah. Because there's too much failure. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a growing up person. I've got plenty of failure behind me. Yep. I got a whole road of failure behind. You can't live life without failing. Yeah. I I don't, I don't need to be reminded of how terrible life is all the time. For me, the stories that I read, the, the, the movies that I gravitate to the stories that I write, Mm -hmm. I am fantasy fulfilling and I want to win at the end because I've lost plenty in life. I don't want to fantasy fulfill where I lose. I want to fantasy fulfill where I get put in this impossible situation that nobody can survive and nobody can win. And yet somehow I do, I win. And so that's why I'm so stern. And again, if you're a different type of writer, you can go a different type of, of, if you're writing them, but the story, in my mind, the story has to be set up that way. So Seven is a great example of a story. It's a brilliant story, one of my favorite stories of all time, but it's set up to fail. You are not winning this story, and you know it. You know it five minutes in that movie There's that, no winning. that you're not winning. No that this is winning. a horrible movie, and you're going to go on a horrible ride, and everything that you're going to do as that main character, you're going to fail. Mm. But it's brilliantly done because it's all done that way it's a it's a it's an exercise the reason why it harps on the seven deadly sins it's an exercise to show the darkness of man and Mm -hmm. when you go against the darkness of man you're going to lose every time 
And that's what the thematic elements are. And that's great. Star Wars and Lord of the Rings were not that. They were hopeful stories. One at the end of it. And you had me fail. And that's just, to me, that's a crime against your, your reader, your, your watcher, your fan. Tying this back to the, to the choosing your narrators. If, if they're not a part of that win, why would I be in a villain's head? He's going to lose. I can still give you all the lessons from his journey or her journey through the story. And that's why I hated Cruella so much. I don't understand how it has a 94% fan appreciation rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The movie was garbage. It literally, you know, it, it never set up anything. It starts with this great thematic that we're going to do something good. And then it ends with, hey, I'm a total jerk face and I've been a total jerk face to everybody else. And I get everything I want. <laughs> and it's like, I don't want to watch that movie. I want bad people because I know bad people win in real life. I, I've, I've lived that. I've lived where I've poured my soul into something and then some jerk face took everything from me and earned nothing. We've, like that's real life. We've, we've all seen bad people win. Like I, I don't, I don't I want don't a fantasy. Fulfill I don't that. want, I don't want fantasy fulfillment. Where bad I want a fantasy win. fulfill that guy losing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that's where the fantasy fulfillment comes into. It's, it, you know, yeah. entertainment is an escapism for me. And I'm not saying that you can't do the other stuff. I'm not saying you just have to set it up and do it. Yeah. So I have I have seen fantasy written from the villain's point of view. I've even seen fantasy written from the villain's point of view where the villain loses to spectacular effect. But those are tragedies and they're set up to be tragedies from the beginning. Yes, exactly. You know, uh, I mean, King Midas is a great example of it for, you know, just a little Hamlet. Short, most of us know. Uh, uh, not, sorry, not Hamlet. Uh, Macbeth. Macbeth, the Scottish player. Macbeth. Okay. Yeah. 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 Macbeth is a perfect example of a story written from a villain's point of view where the villain comes to a sticky end. And it's a great story. It's yep. amazing. He sets it up from the beginning. You yeah. know where you're going. You, you know, sure, the ending is, is cool and surprising and all of that, but it's not out of tune with the feel yeah. of the, where the story was going. You know, you know where it's going. You know, you, you can see Lady Macbeth descending into madness one tiny red flecked step at a time. <laughs> yeah. And so, again, tying this back to, to why do you pick the narratives you pick? Those are the reasons. It's all about what you're trying to do with your thematic elements, your themes, the, the, the characters. The themes should pick the characters not the other way around. And bringing it back to narrators and how yes. you choose them. Location is, location is obviously an important choice. Like if you have multiple locations, you can only tell a story from where you have a narrator. So in the realm, we have eight races. They are mm -hmm. all integral in the, the, the climax of this 20 novel series. If all the races are not involved, and they're kind of segregated. There, there's some, you know, overlap and some different things, but they all have their own areas and their own histories and all of that. So it does mean we have to have a narrating character in every one of those races or we can't bring them together. I mean, if this is, mm -hmm. this is going to be a worldwide calamity that mm -hmm. affects everything in this fantasy world, if we don't include all of the races, then it isn't really a worldwide calamity. And so the only way to do that is to, you know, we've got a lot of narrating characters, but it's 20 novels over five years. It's, you know, we'll have yeah. probably 20, 20, 30 
I'm saying, I'm assuming that it's mm-hmm. going to fall into there. Um, maybe a little less than 20, but we're going to have a lot. I mean, a lot yeah. of narrating characters through this. What thematic elements are you playing? And Genesis, one of the biggest reasons why two of the main characters are brothers is because I wanted to play with the crappy fantasy trope where one brother becomes a villain because the other brother became a hero. It's like saying, you know, why are you a serial killer? Well, because my, my brother became a doctor and he's saving lives. So I obviously have to kill lives. No, no one's ever done that. No one. That is, but for some reason in fantasy, it's like, why'd you become the villain? Because my brother was a hero and I hated that. And so I'm going to destroy the world. Like, no, that's so crazy. And it gets used over and over again. So that's one of the reasons why I'm playing with that trope and I'm doing something different with it. It's so, it's a thematic element that I want to play with. And then that, that adds the, the thematic elements of, of brother, you know, brotherly mm-hmm. love and brotherly relationships and everything else that I can, I can delve into. Uh, they both have their own motivations. They both have their own goals. And so it allows me to take these two different people and that are connected by blood and, and play with that and play with all those thematic elements. But again, the, the trope and the themes pick the characters, not I just made them brothers because I wanted to. And I think that is a good spot to end narrators and choosing narrators on. And we will see you all soon. Bye. Hi, guys. This is Marie from Releasing Your Inner Dragon, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you're interested in more content on fantasy world building, head over to YouTube and look up Just In Time Worlds. I release tons of content there. If you'd like to check out my book, The Hidden Blade by Marie M. Mullaney, it is available as an ebook, audiobook, and print book on Amazon. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Hey guys, Drake here. Thank you so much for listening to Releasing Your Inner Dragon podcast. I hope you're getting a ton of information and maybe even some nuggets of gold that you can take into your own writing to help you on your journey of story creation. A couple things I want to throw at you. First of all, for the first time in years, I am opening myself up to being a private mentor again. If you would like for me to work with you to improve your writing right now, reach out to me. You can either go to my website, maxwellalexanderdrake.com, and send me a contact form or or just email me at author at maxadrake.com. Also, as many of you may know, I've been out of the novel game for quite a few years. I was the lead fiction writer for EverQuest Next from Sony. I've been in the movie and TV industry for a few years now. But I am excited to say I'm back into the novel game. I've actually been working on a novel for a little while now, and I'm going to start dropping it on Amazon's Vela. So if you're on that platform, look me up, Maxwell Alexander Drake. Thank you again for listening, and as always, keep writing.